welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host, Georgia, and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks, and refer to the organizations in the show notes below. Welcome to our new segment, Fight Science. Fight Science is a new episode format in which we will bring to you conversations with the authors of peer-reviewed papers about martial arts and combat sports. In these episodes, you'll get to hear from the author what the practical takeaways are from the article, and you'll get way more from the conversations than you ever could from skimming an article, and I think even from reading the paper itself, although we've dropped that into the show notes so you can check it out if you would like. This is a part of our commitment to bridging the gap between research and practice. Our first guest is Dr. Alex Channon. Alex is the course leader at Brighton University for the Bachelor of Sport Management and the Bachelor of Sports Studies. And Alex's research is super broad across many themes related to martial arts and combat sports. He has explored things like gender, sexuality, violence, um, themes around media, concussions, and so much more. In today's episode, we are going to be breaking down a paper he wrote about consent. The paper is titled Communicating Consent in Sport, a Typological Model of Athletes' Consent Practices Within Combat Sports. Alrighty, so Alex, can you please explain this paper to a 14-year-old? Okay, so this paper is um, it's about the idea of consent. So uh, again, if you're 14 years old, you've probably had some lessons at school about consent, um, probably in the context of sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. You've probably been um, taught about consent mostly in that context. Uh, maybe if you've had any medical procedures, you might have signed a consent form for that. You might have signed a consent form to be, you know, take part in a research project. Maybe um, whenever we whenever we do things with each other, that kind of cross the boundaries of what would normally be acceptable we have to or we, we you know in a legal sense as well as kind of an ethical sense you know in terms of being being good to each other we have to be sure that the other person's okay with doing what we want to do so mm-hmm. for instance, you go to the doctor and the doctor says man you're going to need some surgery right you know your shoulders are mess and we need to we need to cut you open with a scalpel and fix it and um, they're not just going to do that to you they have to make sure that you understand what's going to happen and that you say you know it's okay for you to do this surgery on me and i, I give you my consent to do that to me mm-hmm. so very very important um sort of principle in terms of living in a, in a society where everyone has respect for each other and everyone has the same rights and so on we need to know that people consent to doing things with and, and to each other Now, it's very interesting in the context of sport, because we do things in sport like um, we tackle each other, we throw each other on the ground and we kick each other in the head for fun. Right. We choke each other out and we do all these things that, man, if you did that in the street, you'd be going to prison. Right. Mm -hmm. So in sports, we need to have an understanding of the fact that people consent to this. And it's because of consent that people don't go to prison for rugby tackles. 
right? That's the legal principle. If you were going to try and prosecute somebody, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's why they wouldn't get prosecuted because you've consented. So in this paper, what we're doing, um, we're writing about martial arts as a, a case study, but we're really writing about all sports, really, all, all contact sports, let's say, um, mm -hmm. in the sense that we don't really know very much as researchers about how people give consent in sport. So we do have quite a lot of research on sex, as you could probably mm -hmm. imagine, it's a very important topic. Um, we have quite a lot of research on medicine. Again, it's you know the, the legal ramifications of being a practicing doctor, nurse, whatever, you, you have to know how people give consent for this. Mm -hmm. um, and in other, other fields as well, we have this good understanding, but in sport, where consent is really, really, really important, actually we haven't got a lot of research, so we don't know how do people give consent to do sports? And how do people know that they've given consent to do the things that they do in sports? So in this paper, we basically try and spell out how that happens in, in martial arts and combat sports. There are four main different ways that we've identified. Um, mm -hmm. that, uh, that, yeah, there are ways for people to communicate consent. And in the paper, we talk also about some of the ways that um, those methods kind of break down sometimes. Nice. So what are the four ways? <laughs> Okay, so the four ways. So first of all, um, there's what we've called um, explicit consent, where mm -hmm. we're literally saying, you know, are, are you okay to do this? Yes, I'm okay to do this. We're, we're directly communicating with each other. So if you think about um, signing a form before a competition that, that outlines, mm -hmm. you know, this is what's gonna happen, you know, you sign here to, to for our records to show that you've done this. Some of your mm -hmm. listeners who compete might might very well have done that recently if, they, if they've, um, you know, if they signed a form. You might also see it at the start of a competition. Um, the referee might say, um, you know, are you ready? Yeah, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> are you ready? Let's go. Um, so that, yeah. that's that question. Um, a coach might might ask someone, you know, are you sure you're okay? You know, you're injured. You, you're okay to carry on? You know, those. so you, you have these kind of conversations perhaps with your training partner. Um, mm -hmm. I get injured all the time. So I'm always talking to my partners. Are you all right? Are you injured? You know, do we need to take it easy? And so on. So that explicit direct communication. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll go through all of them and then I'll come back to some of the problems with them. So the, the yes. second one will be like kind of implicit communication. So we're not saying mm -hmm. it out loud in a way that everyone can understand. But if we're going to roll in jiu-jitsu, you, you train jiu-jitsu, don't you, Georgia? Yep. Yeah. Yes. So if we're going to roll, we would, first of all, we would put our hands up and we would slap our hands and then we would bump. And then we know that that means it's okay to start sparring now. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't just grab each other suddenly on the mats. I mean, you might do <laughs> if you're friends <laughs> and you will come back to that one. But generally yeah. in jiu-jitsu, that says I'm ready to go. And then <laughs> when I'm ready to stop, you know, I will tap you or I'll, I'll mm -hmm. say stop, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in karate, we bow. In boxing, we touch gloves. So we have these kind of rituals, these, these conventionally recognized gestures that people mm -hmm. outside of martial arts might not understand. But in mm -hmm. martial arts, we do, and that's mm -hmm. how we communicate our consent to to, mm -hmm. to get you know to get get going. Yep. We also in in that in that category, we also put another thing, which is sometimes we get this ability to sort of read each other. So yeah. you and I are sparring, let's say, and we normally spar together, and you know every week, and I kind of know what you what you like. I know your energy levels, your pace, and I can see that today you're a bit slower than usual, mm -hmm. and you don't quite seem yourself. And I'm going to kind of read that and I'm going to adjust and I'm going to take things down a notch because uh 
maybe something's wrong. She yep. didn't really want to say it outright, I'm not going to pry, but I'm going to take it down a notch. So we've got this kind of unspoken communication. Mm -hmm. Equally, um, it might be that I'm sparring with someone and they they land a really good shot. They 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 catch me and and they they give me a little grin, and I think, mm -hmm. oh okay, so we're 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 going to go, are we? And I'll turn it up a little bit and we'll match our. So it's like intensity negotiation. Some other mm -hmm. writers call it this. We argue that that's a form of consent practice because mm -hmm. there's these little nods, these little smiles, these little things that say, okay, we're still on the same page. Again, that can break down. And I'll, I'll come back to how. So that's the second category. So the, the, both of those are communicative and we're mm -hmm. starting to get more towards the sort of reading of somebody rather than directly communicating with them. The third category that we call assumed consent. And this is by and large the, the main thing. Whenever I talk to anyone in sport about this, this is the thing that comes up. How do you know that someone's consented to being rugby tackled? Well, they're on the pitch, so they must consent. To it, right? <laughs> How do you know that someone's consent to being punched? Well, they're, they're in the boxing ring. They wouldn't have stepped in the ring if they didn't consent to being punched. So you don't have to have any kind of formal or informal communication. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of tournaments, people don't sign consent forms and they don't touch gloves before the fight. You know, they might not do that as a way of whipping the crowd up a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. No communication of consent, but they're in that space and that's sufficient. And legally as well, that, that's often the case. You know, it's accepted that you, you understand what happens here. Mm. You're in space, you've, you've consented. So because we've got these kind of formal structures of sport, there is a space that you do it in, the ring. There is a time between the ringing of the bell. There are rules. Mm. There's a referee to oversee it. Because of all of that institutional structure, we don't really have to explicitly affirm our consent to each other. Mm -hmm to do things because we can read that into the behavior of other people. So that's the assumed consent. And then finally, the fourth category, uh, we call deferred consent. And this is uh, a really tricky one because we're, we're no longer effectively making our own decisions about what happens to us when we're deferring consent to other people. So it might be the case in a training context where the coach says, when I say start, you start. And when I say stop, you stop. And you don't stop mm -hmm. before that. Mm -hmm. And when you're sparring, the coach might say, go harder with him. You know, ease up on her, whatever it is. The coach is, is giving those instructions. In the context of a competitive fight, it might be the case that somebody doesn't want to, particularly in boxing, they don't want to take a knee. They don't want to quit on the stool. They've got too much pride. The coach will throw the, the towel in for them. And that's a mm -hmm. you know, long-standing practice in boxing. So the coach withdraws consent on behalf of the athlete. Um, or an example that really stuck with me um, from one of the projects that I did. Um, a, a, an MMA fighter friend of mine who explained to me why he um, he gave up his back and got choked out um, was that he didn't want to he didn't want to tap to strikes. He was mounted and the guy was was punching, you know, landing lots of strikes. He knew he was done, uh, but he mm. wasn't going to tap to strikes. Then the referee um, hadn't stepped in, so he gave up his back and, and let the guy get the choke and said, "I'll just wait for the referee to stop the fight." basically. So he didn't want to submit because of the, the pride implications. Um, mm. So he free to do it for him. Um, mm. So people are deferring their consent. So normally, if we're training together, and like I said, you know, in that example where perhaps your energy levels are a bit low, I'm going to say, oh, you know, I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm matching that. So we would adopt this kind of position of looking after each other. When we defer consent to somebody else, 
we're kind of absolving ourselves of that responsibility. I'm I'm mm -hmm. not looking after my opponent because the referee is supposed to. So we've deferred that to to that person. So there's four different types of consent there: explicit, yes, implicit, assumed, and, and deferred. Mm, okay, I have a story that I think almost like pulls all of these um, different types of consent um, and, and highlights, I think, some of the problems. I'm pretty sure this happened after I read this paper um, or sometime around it, because I remember thinking about consent a lot when this happened to me. So I was training in an MMA, like, fight team training um class and it was at a time where like covid was happening so there was a lot of time like in and out of training um and some people were able to really continue training through that and some people weren't and it was a class that i was not aware was going to be a sparring class but because of the like increased number of girls there than usual the coach said okay well we're going to have the girls do sparring which kind of makes sense you know that girls want to get experience sparring with girls right so the sparring then started they just said you know all the girls are like going to get in the ring and i think that piece around um you just do what the coach tells you to do especially if you've done martial arts for a long time gets really ingrained into you so for me starting when i was 12 you just say us in karate it's not very much like a is this a conversation around do i or don't i want to do i consent it's just like whatever the coach says is disrespectful to not and so you very much just sort of say yes um, and there was an incident where at this time, the one of the um, female MMA fighters was told by the coach off to the side, I want you to go really hard. But the coach didn't ask anybody else, are you okay if she's going really hard to match that intensity? And when the first punches started coming, they were hard. And so I said, whoa, that's too hard. So like a verbal tap, verbally, I suppose, trying to negotiate consent. To which she said, well, no, I have to because the coach is outside, like, watching me there making me. Um, and the strike came again to which then I turned around and said to the coach, you know, this is not okay. Like, you can't assume that I'm consenting. Um, to which the coach just said, you're not. She didn't even hit you that hard. Um, and <laughs> let's say I'm no longer with that gym. But uh, it was really interesting to me how, of course, like, Yes, I touched gloves with her. Yes, I was in the cage. So you might think that I'm consenting, but how hard did I consent to being hit? Did I consent to being hit with high intensity? I obviously know what high intensity is like because I've had full contact fights before. Um, so it was very interesting to see how like that, it's not so black and white. It's not just do you agree to be punched in the face? It's well, how hard do you agree to be punched in the face? And is my tap my verbal tap going to be acknowledged and how do we you know um negotiate that across different clubs and in in martial arts settings and i love this paper because i think it really poignantly points out how we do have such stringent guidelines for what consent needs to be in in medicalized consent and you know like now we're moving towards enthusiastic consent in in terms of sex but martial arts or these like contact sports where the um, lack of consent can have really high consequences is so there's just been much less thought, if any thought given to it. And I love this piece. Well, uh, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that it's it's helped to 
sort of figure out that and, and that story you know hear stuff like this all the time and it's not just martial arts it, it's sports you know especially competitive sports and you know unfortunately it's, it's particularly acute in children's competitive sports so thinking mm. about elite youth level um uh, performance but in sports where the youth are actually the very top performers so in in gymnastics figure skating um some swimmers uh, there are there are you know case studies that come out time and time again are either academic research or journalistic reporting um mm -hmm. about abuse you know child abuse basically um whether that's sexual abuse but but you know physical psychological emotional abuse of athletes that's that's happening because of these kind of power dynamics with coaches and that's not to say that every time you get a, a sort of domineering coach it's always abusive but it sets mm -hmm. the scene where abuse can become normalized particularly when we're talking about children. I mean, we're talking about you here, uh, an experienced adult practitioner who can say, you know, hold on a minute, <laughs> you know, this mm -hmm. isn't okay. Um, you know, if you didn't have that experience, if you were a child, you know, mm -hmm. you've got no agency, you've got no power to push back against this. So I think it, it's absolutely urgent, you know, to, to figuring out safeguarding concerns, to figuring out how to, how to um, implement supportive and positive cultures in sport where yes we do push hard we do train we, we aim for excellence and all the rest of it but we make sure that people retain the ability to make their own decisions about what they do with their you know with their bodies especially in dangerous sports like combat sports you know gymnastics we're talking about you know potentially you know life and limb on the line you know in these sort of situations um, and if we don't have a proper um way of understanding what consent is in sport then it opens the door to this kind of stuff so it, it really surprised us that there's no research until we published this there was only one piece of published research that that tried to articulate how consent is done in sports um i referenced it we've referenced it a few times in the paper it's a book about um mixed martial arts and bdsm in the us uh, by jill weinberg really really good book that's the only piece of research that had looked at this before so it, it kind of surprised us really and i think you know hopefully we will see more research particularly in youth sport settings about how these kinds of things happen and what kind of guidelines you know we can implement to um to ensure that there's a at least an understanding of what consent is in in uh, in sport contexts yeah i think this youth context i really hadn't paid i think as much attention as i should have i think the conversation that comes up a lot <laughs> Um, in the consent space is the MMA question where in the last few years we've seen a number of circumstances where a fighter has been on the stool and really like they're saying to their team like I don't want to go back out there and the team's like come on you can do it and they're pushing them out like, like the opposite of the thing that you just explained that is a tradition in in boxing where the corner will throw in the towel we're seeing in MMA um, you know the the need to try and win and get the win bonus and earn money is is causing sometimes um the coaches to override the consent and you know i've heard the argument and i don't disagree that you know is it going to take someone to die in the ring for us to actually implement some of the recommendations maybe from your paper or you know get some researchers in to say how can we do this better absolutely i, I think that's that's a fear that's shared by a lot of people that organize and and run MMA. Um, another study that I did that fed into this one, uh, some of the data in this paper came came from this study was um, I, I shadowed uh, referees at mixed martial arts events and I interviewed them. Mm -hmm. Some some particularly um, you know very experienced top top refs, 
and uh, yeah they, they were saying exactly this you know some of the things that we see in the sport it's a miracle that someone hasn't died or that people don't die more regularly because people have tragically um usually to do with weight cutting um yeah but uh, yeah the, the the normalization of this idea that you go out on your shield you know you don't you don't tap to strikes like my friend said it's just ridiculous you're losing you know you've lost this 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 guy this this girl she's better he's better whatever the game's over you know and and you can say that and you can own up to that and, and you'll live by another day and so often this is left up to the referee or it's left up to the coaches who then don't come good on that expectation um so yeah there are i think everyone in this field can benefit from thinking a bit more carefully about consent and about the importance of consent um as well as you know the, the context of things like brain injuries and, and all the rest of it that, that makes this super important but um, yeah absolutely Let's go back to some of the problems with each of those four types of consent that you alluded to. So first we had explicit consent. What issues are there there? Okay, so yeah, this is a great one. I mean, often these these forms that you're asked to sign at events, and I, I witnessed quite a few of these, these sort of low-level regional kind of MMA and, and boxing, kickboxing shows as when I was studying medical provision um, in these, these um, sports. And hardly any of them had any any form signing going on a couple of them did and it was just something that somebody knocked up on the computer it, it wasn't you know it wasn't really very detailed it was just sort of a, a play for some kind of like insurance liability thing I think it was sort of a ticking a box for the insurer um, mm -hmm. to make sure they had sort of signed consent forms do these consent forms um, provide information about what is likely to happen to you if you have surgery you, you know you sit down with the the surgeon beforehand and they explain the complications they explain alternatives they go through with you they, they make sure you understand then you sign it in this context it's it's not that at all and presumably people have some kind of understanding about you know brain injuries or um, the possibility of contracting a blood-borne disease or um, you know neurological complications or, or if you've got an underlying health condition heart heart problems maybe you have that knowledge but there's no effort to to make make sure you do so those though that form signing often is very much a perfunctory tick box get it out of the way get on with it kind of thing if it happens at all um equally the the referee's question <laughs> are you ready <laughs> are you ready i mean that's not a real question is it, it it's performative it's for the cameras you know nobody is going to say actually ref i'm not ready <laughs> No, I, I'm having second thoughts. That's not going to happen. It's not a genuine question. Um, I did write in the paper, you know, we, we saw moments where the referee did actually have, you know, genuine little quiet discussions with fighters. Some of the <laughs> medics like, told me that they would do this. They would just sort of sit and have a little word, you know, you know, tap me on the shoulder if you're worried and we'll get you out of it kind of thing. So they do do this, but it's not necessarily always happening. So explicit consent i think we would say this is what we would like to see a lot more of um but there are things like peer pressure there are questions about how much information people have how performative these things are so they don't always you know when we see it happening that doesn't necessarily mean people really have given their informed freely uh, you know no pressure um, consent so that's yeah. the yeah it's, it, it makes me think of um always before i've gone out to fight in kickboxing so in muay thai the medic goes around um and when they sign off your gloves they always ask you have you been concussed or have you been rocked in the last 10 weeks in sparring like as if 
And anyone who's done a full, put in a full fight camp, gone through the weight cut, made weight, rocked up to the fight night, has like having their gloves signed off is going to be like, yeah. <laughs> like it's such a silly question to ask because nobody's going to truthfully answer it at that moment. And, and <laughs> I've, seen that, I've seen that question asked in front of all of the other fighters. So, so <laughs> you know, my opponent is sitting right there. Do you have any weaknesses, Alex? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? it's ridiculous it's so ridiculous but yeah it, it's going through the motions i mean it's presumably it's better than nothing at all but mm, mm, mm. We see it, it doesn't mean it, it's you know gold standard yeah um okay next the rituals like the fist bumping or you know things like that what are the problems yeah. with that so it becomes perhaps a little bit too routinized so we step on the mat and we bow and we come in and we really does it really mean consent to us? You know, when we slap and, and bump, do we really think that through? Like you said, you know, you, you're in the you're in the ring, you've touched gloves, you've said let's go, and then you get lamped, you know, like, <laughs> hold on, does it really mean this? So when we aren't explicitly negotiating, and especially and <laughs> we can take some big, some big um uh sort of signals from the, from the research on sex consent here, you <laughs> know, you give consent in a way that perhaps the other person thinks means A, but you actually mean B. Um, mm -hmm. And you go, oh, hold on a minute, I actually meant B. Um, oh, but you, you, you know, I thought we were doing A, you know, and without that kind of explicit negotiation and that back and forth communication, these kind of implicit signals can sometimes be misread. So a good example of this, again, to, to sort of lean into the, the sex research area is if, you know, you're, you're kissing somebody and then, you know, they, they start to like take your clothes off or something. If you do nothing, um, does that mean that you're happy with them to continue doing this? You know, if you enthusiastically help them or you start with their clothes, I mean, that's probably a good signal. Yes. If you do nothing, is that a signal? Yes. Or is it a signal? No. Or is it what does it mean? So if we're relying on um, sort of implicit communication, we can run into problems. Um, so, you know, back to the martial arts context, I think your story summarizes this really, really well. If you hadn't had the guts to, to say, actually, you know what, hang on, let's not do this. You know, you could have got hurt in that, that moment and everyone in that space would have thought you were fine with it which you mm -hmm. clearly won, right? So it can break down when we're not being careful with our communication. Equally, you know, new members of the gym, they don't necessarily understand all these things. We might overread someone's body language. It might be that that person caught me really flush with that left hook and they didn't really mean to, but I think, oh, hang on, it's game time. And then I smack them back. And then suddenly they feel like, oh shit, we're in a fight. And now, you know, we've got this kind of escalation of, so we've basically just misread each other you know, and, and without intending to, we're actually going much harder than either of us really want to. Um, so there are a few ways when we're not having direct conversations that we can maybe misread those cues and, and they can get away from us. That doesn't mean that the majority of the time they aren't really, really good ways to communicate consent because we can't, every time we spar, we can't go through, you know, let's sit down and work it all out for five minutes. You know, we, we, we want to get on with it. So we have those those rituals for a reason, but again, they, they can have, moments where they they don't serve us particularly well yeah it makes me think of flow rolling right like how hard it often is yeah. to flow roll it's like it's, this starts out at you know 40 percent and then it's just all of a sudden we're fully rolling you know <laughs> like it's very difficult and we'll probably come back to that around some strategies for that but um I mean, most, most of the time you most of the time you work that out don't you it's not too bad but you, you can imagine moments where perhaps you know if, if someone's just especially with new 
you know, people who are new to sparring and jujitsu they get quite scared you know because you're it's unsettling um and they might freak out a little bit and and that's when we're talking about you know injury risk if they're not if their opponent is expecting them to roll at 40 percent, and suddenly they're at 100 mm. out of nowhere mm. but yeah sorry so next the the assumed consent so you know this is where we, we we're basically we're not having any kind of attempt to, to to know that for sure this person in this space at this time definitely is happy with what i think they are so there, there's just an yep. assumption there's no communication um one of the really sort of fitting examples of this that, that i can remember was again from the medic study backstage um with the medic and she's talking to this young lad who i think probably 14 15 you know junior categories and he's visibly upset you know he, he's not he's not um enjoying himself being there i mean you you get nervous before a competition but uh, you know and then she explained to me later i didn't sit in on this conversation obviously it was you know it was confidentiality and everything but she explained to me later you know this this kid he clearly didn't want to want to be there but he was really scared because he turned up he was in that space with his team with his coach with everybody else he didn't feel like he could take himself out of that space so for everybody else to see him once he's walked out into the into the the arena none of that is visible Mm -hmm. purely the presence in the space at the time which everybody else recognizes is a, is a sign that you're happy um they don't know what's going on under the surface and again we're kind of back to the youth issue here um that just assuming that somebody being present in that space signifies consent is you know it's very much a loaded assumption and it might not mm -hmm. tell us the full story and again your, your story i think you've served up a really good illustration of how these things can go wrong Oh, but you know surely georgia if you came to this camp you know you must be ready to get knocked out constantly in sparring because that's what we do here right didn't you know that mm -hmm. right so without you being able to explicitly challenge um those assumptions you know your your um, consent is being assumed where it didn't exist so that again it, it's pretty clear to see how that could break down another way that, that breaks down is um often what happens below the sort of top level of combat sports and you might have experienced this yourself as a kickboxer is you'll be booked to fight somebody at a certain weight class in um let's say it's muay thai or it's k1 or it's uh, is, well, there are different classes in muay thai aren't there? it's like a class and b class is that right or not in australia we just have like pro and amateur okay I'm, i might be getting my disciplines all mixed up but there are different classes different rule sets and you turn mm -hmm. up on the night and your opponent is 10 kilos heavier and wants to fight in a different rule set and there's quibbling about what the agreement ever was because it was all done by text and no one can find the yeah. message. Um, and in the moment, it's like, well, hey, you know, she's here and, and you're here. So either, you know, if you want your 200 quid, then, you know, you, you've got to go out and fight, you know, someone who's bigger and, and in a rule set that you didn't prepare for. So you're here, you're a fighter, you're part of this sport. Surely you must be okay with it because fighters are always ready for anything, aren't they? Any, anywhere, anytime, any place. So again, this kind of possible exploitation of this by people that you know maybe are a little bit unscrupulous um, when it comes to organising these matches. So yeah, again, numerous ways that can that can uh, that can crack. Yes, oh my gosh, so many. Was that the last one? Um, so the the uh, the final one, um, deferred consent. I mean, it's yes. obvious, right? Yeah, you're leaving <laughs> up to the coach, but the coach doesn't have a great record and maybe the coach's rival is coaching the other guy and the mm -hmm. coach doesn't want to throw the towel in right they for whatever their their motivation might be maybe the coach doesn't understand doesn't see that you're in trouble as you described you're on the stool in between rounds and you're saying i'm i'm done i'm done and the coach is like 
no i i know her she's got more in the tank what she really needs is a little bit of a talking to come on you're going to go up there and you're going to be fine and then you know she gets off the stool and, and 30 seconds later she's knocked out you know mm. it might be that the referee is um is unable to see that you've been choked out um mm -hmm. actually saw this happen uh one of the the fights i went to for the medic study the referee um so this was a mixed event it was a it was in a cage but it was mma kickboxing they had a bare knuckle fight on they had a jiu-jitsu match yeah, yeah, yeah. mixed thing the referees were all um kickboxing refs and they were perfectly competent qualified kickboxing refs but they didn't know jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. so there's an mma fight and firstly it's an amateur fight so they shouldn't be throwing um they shouldn't be throwing elbows um particularly mm -hmm. to a grounded opponent and that was happening and the ref was just letting it happen um and then a guy got caught in a triangle um the triangle choke and it didn't tap and the ref was mm -hmm. just standing just watching like waiting um and everybody around the cage was on their feet screaming he's he's out ref he's out he's out and the the fighter who won the fight looked up at the ref and, and was like you know he's he's out sort of thing and so this guy was was unconscious for you know 10 20 seconds probably um before the referee oh okay i better stop this so consent had been deferred to a person who was in that case incompetent um, and not mm. able to make informed decisions about that person's health so again it's it's not to to blame necessarily the fighters there that's the the, the culture of the sport you know you maybe the guy thought he could escape and he, he just didn't you know caught up with him and he, he passed out before he managed to to tap the other mm -hmm. fighter was doing what he's supposed to he's, he's winning the fight and that culture of the sport which says you know you are not responsible for the other person's well-being because the referee is there right that's that's the mm -hmm. infrastructure that's in place um mm -hmm. in that case the, the sport let him down so um yeah there, there are so many ways we could go on about deferred consent having problems particularly when we get into the realms of abusive coaching relationships and there's loads that we could unpick with that but uh yeah that's, that's you know, how they uh how they might break down there yeah my gosh it's so helpful i think for folks to have that framework in their minds um like it it really helps me when i think about the classes that i teach um so i mean it's a little bit easier in a trauma-informed space it's very front of everyone's mind that this other person might not be comfortable at any moment. And so there's lots of checking in, but also it's super culturally embedded. Um, so for example, like when we're hitting pads, we'll start that off by saying, okay, you're going to go as light as possible and then slowly increase the, like the intensity that you're hitting pads, even on pads. Right. But you could imagine that that could be sparring. Um, so they'll say, you know, the person receiving it's, they get to choose how hard you're allowed to hit them and they'll tell you you can go harder you can go harder you can go harder you can go harder um and they'll do that up until a point and then after a little while when we're getting excited it's very common for the for someone to stop and go oh is that still okay is that intensity still okay is that feedback still okay and they check back in and it literally takes seconds and it doesn't feel like awkward and weird because we've always done it so it doesn't have to become this like whole new thing um when I contrast that, one thing I tried to do once I like thought about this was I was like, I'm going to get informed consent from all my training partners. So I was like, okay, I'm going to ask everyone what 
intensity as a percentage would you like to roll? So do you want to go 100%? Do you want to go 80%? Or do you want to go 50%? And I just found it was really awkward because it wasn't normalized as like a thing that people did. I just stopped doing it. I, I think I tried it a couple of times and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm the odd one out, so I'm not going to do it. But I, I see a lot of value in it, you know? Yeah, so, so I, I do that. I, not, not, um, I always ask about injuries. You know, are you okay mm. in injuries? Well, I mostly yes, do, I do that. Not, not every single time, but I, I make a habit of that. Partly because I've usually got an injury, so <laughs> I want to want to tell them. Um, but yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. in. And I think in in my gym, especially because I'm I'm one of the older guys, I guess in my gym, um, there's perhaps an expectation that the older guys might do that because we're carrying more injury baggage, um, so to speak. And it it hasn't gone down like you know in a way that I feel awkward with having those quick conversations because it is it's just a you know a quick a couple of seconds you know and I, and I'll ask if I want to go a bit lighter I'll, I'll ask and I'll make a point of that so that my partners know I'm okay for you to ask me you know if you want to go lighter mm-hmm. totally fine um, but yes yeah, it, it's still like I said before you know we don't have time to sit down and really hash out all of the things that we want to go through but we mm-hmm. can find those few seconds. You know, maybe the time has started. It doesn't matter if you spend the first 10 seconds briefly explaining that you got arm barred last week. So, you know, if you're going to attack my right arm, just I'll tap quickly just to let you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It takes very little time. And I think it's it's not just about protecting ourselves in the moment. It's also about fostering a culture of, of being more explicit with consent, which, um, you know, I think we've, we've kind of skirted around that a few times in this discussion. That's basically the main um, ambition of this in terms of practice is let's try and get this on people's radars it doesn't mean everything has to be signed in triplicate and all legalized like in medicine um but it does mean we need to be a bit more conscious of how we could be a bit more yeah reflective and, and owning our, our consent a bit more um yeah more consistently yeah let's talk about that at the level of the coach and the level of the student so what do what can coaches do to embed consent into their culture so I think, first of all, coaches, whatever the discipline is, they, they can be nice and clear about, um, particularly when it comes to sparring, about the, the do's and don'ts. You know, mm-hmm. you might put posters up in the club. You know, you, you see sometimes, um, certainly in the gyms that I've been in, you see things like, you know, leave your ego at the door kind of thing and, you know, show respect and all, all that kind of like little motivational little thingies and, and, and what have you. Um, you could easily, you know, stick a bit of um, wall space up for, for rules. You know, these, these are the rules, maybe the rules of the sport, competition rules, but also the etiquette for, for the club. It doesn't mean that everyone has to constantly follow the same etiquette all the time in that really kind of rigid old school fashion. But it just makes it clear that there is an etiquette here. You know, keep your nails clipped, right? Wash your gi, you know, the mm. basic hygiene sort of things. Um, if you've got an injury, it's your responsibility to disclose it to, to the coach. So basic things like this that just put it not only in the moment to help people do those things right but also put it into people's minds that it's okay to be conscious of this you know we're not creating hardcore warriors here you know we're doing a sport that's fun and we're, mm-hmm. we're doing it in a positive way and part of that is everyone um you know looking out for each other and all that kind of stuff so coaches can can take small steps like that to foster that sort of that sort of spirit as well as having conversations themselves with you know with the people that they train making it clear whenever sparring starts you know it, how, how many seconds would it take to say, talk to your partners before you before you start rolling? You know, it's, it's like 10 words or whatever, you know, very, very briefly, like talk to each other, look after each other, um, don't go too high. It's simple little things like this, just to make sure that everyone knows, 
you know, unless we're doing, you know, full on competition class prep for, for a fight, mm-hmm. you know, look after each other. <laughs> and even, even when we are going hard, still put that in your mind. So I think coaches can play you know, a really important role in setting the tone. Okay, so I think for when it comes to yeah, students, practitioners of different martial arts and combat sports, I think the main thing here, the main take home is to, you know, to be more assertive about your own boundaries. You know, it, it's okay to say that this is not what I want to do, you know, to, um, to, to stand up and, and sort of, you know, make sure that your, uh, your own sort of personal dignity is respected in these spaces and in all sports. It's very important that, that people are aware that, you know, just because the coach says you have to do something, you don't actually have to do that thing. Um, the coach yeah. is saying because they, they believe this is a good way for you to develop perhaps, or it's part of their, um, you know, their training regime or whatever, but it doesn't mean that you have to do it. Um, and being more explicit with where your own boundaries lie, uh, as well as, you know, being open to and, and um, you know, having those conversations with other people about where their boundaries lie. I think that's, you know, that's crucial. That's that's what a culture, a good culture of consent looks like, where people are conscious of this and are um, taking steps to, uh, yeah, to to protect and, and to promote uh, each other's welfare in, in that sort of positive way. And consent's a really big part of that. Yeah, definitely. I think that it can be like a gradual type of thing as well. Like um, we talk about the story that I was saying before, you know, I didn't storm out of the cage. I stayed in the cage. And in hindsight, actually, if it was to have happened to me now, I would have left. Um, I would have been even clearer um, when my attempt at um, expressing how I was not consenting to that um was pulled away um but uh five years before that I wouldn't have said anything like I just I just would have accepted it and it's been like a as you get practiced at doing that it becomes like a little bit easier and you realize that you do have a say but it's hard just to go from you've never stood up for yourself and you've never set a boundary to like doing that regularly so sometimes it can be just like the small things you know maybe like you didn't say it at the time but you you get up the courage to write an email and say like hey in class last week I actually felt a little bit uncomfortable in this situation and I just wanted you to be aware of that and see how we can rectify that in the future if that feels like gentler and an easier thing to do absolutely yeah this is all about giving people um, an opportunity to you know, to be empowered and to take control of their own activity, their own exercise. You know, we're talking about people doing things with their bodies that are potentially quite dangerous. So, mm-hmm. you know, why why wouldn't you want people to to have that? You know, to retain that autonomy. You know, it's it's so important in an ethical sense, but also in a legal sense. You know, you're, you're protecting yourself as a coach if you're you know if you're open to this kind of thing. Um, and it, it, this might be a a difficult thing for some martial arts instructors to swallow. You know, especially if they're really old school and they're used to that kind of really hierarchical authoritarian kind of approach but that's you know that's not the world we live in and with increasing awareness around brain trauma especially i know we've mentioned this a few times now but you know this is the context that we're dealing with we're doing something that you know when it's striking sports we are risking traumatic brain injuries so people have to be able to consent to this um it's just it's it's non-negotiable so um yeah it would be nice to see a bit more conscious uh sort of movement in this, this kind of direction i think yeah, it wouldn't be nice. Um, one final question then, what do you predict? I know you're not a fortune teller, but what do you predict to be the future of consent in combat sports? So from a from a research point of view, 
where we need to go next with this is we need to understand how um, long-term exposure to particularly head injuries um, affects a person's ability to consent. There is some research on this. It's not good. The, the messaging is, you know, you're more likely to lose the cognitive capacity to understand the risks and to be more, um, you know, sort of gung-ho with these sort of things. Um, we need to understand more about how children are, are giving or how consent is given on behalf of children and, and young adults and what kind of, um, not just what's done at the institutional level in sports, because everyone's got a safeguarding policy now. Everyone puts the welfare of the child at the heart of everything that we do. You know, we've, we've heard that many times from sports governing bodies, but we need to understand how is that implemented on the ground? How do coaches and, and other um, practitioners, um, you know, working with young people, actually enable kids to to make their own decisions and to have, to have ownership so we need to do some work on that um and equally i think it's it's quite important as well that we don't lose sight of some of the, the more pressing issues with with consent as they relate to sport so for instance sexual harassment and, and consent um in that kind of context which is unfortunately a bit of a, uh, an issue um in, in combat sports uh, at the moment um and also medical consent you know athletes rights to you know to receive medical care that is actually in their best interests and not just in the service of promoting sports performance um which is a completely different topic <laughs> the sports medicine stuff but um there's some really really uh critical findings in that kind of area that, that suggests that sometimes sport medicine is not in the service of, of athletes interests and they're not you know they're consenting to treatments that are not necessarily actually going to help them so um yeah there's a few things for us to do academically um what the the future looks like in practice um yeah it's difficult to tell but I, I do think we're moving towards particularly again with the brain injury stuff we're moving towards more litigation uh, we're moving towards athletes being more organized um and more aware and raising that awareness and ultimately hopefully having more informed decision making process around full contact sparring full contact competition so i think we, we seem to be moving in the right kind of direction with this that um, you know, we're not just throwing people in the deep end. We're, we're thinking about what we're doing to our brains, um, and that can only be a good thing. So, hopefully, that that continues. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, speaking as someone who's done striking for a while, it is really hard to use the brain that may possibly be impacted by damage to decide whether or not you've been affected. That is like even a head spin just to try and think about, let alone, you know, put into practice for a coach who's got a lot of people, like it's such an important topic. Yeah. There's uh, there's some other research I could put you in touch with who you might want to talk to about this, who, um, you know, we can talk about after. Yes, definitely. Let's talk about that. I mean, we could have just cut that at the end. <laughs> last bit there. So please tell me that. Also, um, the, um, what are they, I forgot the name, um, the group that are doing um, the sport development program that started in Brazil that are now in London. Uh, Fight for Peace. Fight for Peace, yeah. yeah. If you can yeah, put yeah, in touch with them, fantastic. I would love, love to have them on the um, potty. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I actually owe them a couple of emails. Um, I'm a little bit behind with my contact with them, so I'll, I'll get on to that and um, I'll ask if they're, they're interested. The, the Conscious Combat Club, right? That's your... Is that the name yes. of the podcast as well as the, the general project? Yes. Yeah, lovely. And no, I think they'd, they'd be they'd be great. I mean, they are um, they're the people that do the work, not not the researchers that that critique it. Um, but they all have some great great stories for you. Um, and they they are, I say, 
one of the better examples of a sport development program that, that we've seen at our university they, they really do take it seriously they're not um not just sort of a you know jumpers for goalposts and everything will be fine kind of uh kind of outfit so yeah, that's yeah cool. which is awesome it's good to have that balance um yeah. i want to be super respectful of your time so thank you so much for this um we'll make another time some point in the future thank you for being part of the club we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to get in touch please refer to the information in the show notes if you'd like to support this podcast please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode like to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari the Saga. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. To many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came and the feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifest enough collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances when i was truly beaten gave myself clearances to fall down mess up and get myself back up i'm not looking for clovers because i don't believe in luck damn you were badass i heard them say it clearly why thank you very much i know now i'm not weary of what's next for me because i expect to see growth like i was planted watered fed and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?